This is Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, a series of interviews that explores the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This conversation was recorded on Facebook Live on Monday, September 27th at 3.30 p.m. On this episode of Just Conversations, Dean Douglas speaks with Lonnie G. Bunch III, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. In this conversation, Dean Douglas will explore Dr. Bunch's former role as Director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture and the importance of telling an accurate and truthful account of American history. In addition, they will discuss the criticisms the museum faced and some of the parallels of the criticisms that the 1619 Project has faced since its publishing. This fall, Just Conversations will dive deeper into the essays and themes discussed in our fall community read, The 1619 Project from the New York Times. Thank you, Secretary Bunch, for taking the time to join me in this conversation today. It's an honor to be with you. Anytime I'm with you, I learn so much. So thank you for letting me learn more again. Well, I am humbled by that, and, and it is mutual. Let's, let's get right in. There's so much to talk about. So I want to start with this notion of how we understand history of the power of, the his, of history. It strikes me that in many respects, the African-American Museum of History and Culture is doing in a visual way humanizing, as you put it, history in a way that the 1619 Project was doing through essays. That is, you have also, as you have also said, showing forth the promise of American life and the limits of the promise through an African-American historical and cultural lens. I have come to think, as I have said to you earlier, as of the museum as critical race theory on the mall. Can you speak to the similarities between debates surrounding critical race theory and the debates that were surrounding the need for the National Museum of African-American History and Culture and perhaps what these debates tell us about the power of how we tell our history? Well, I always felt that the African-American Museum was 1619 before the project. That's right. Critical race theory before critical race theory was popular, that in essence, what I really felt was crucially important was that America has rarely confronted its, torture, its tortured racial history. It's rarely said, how do I understand who I really am? And that often when people talk about issues of race, it's really ancillary stories. That the real story is here, but oh yeah, we need to talk about race. And what I wanted to do with the museum, and what I hope the discussions around 1619 do, is not only say, let us make more visible this history, but rather to suggest that this history is the quintessential American history. That in essence, these are the stories that shape us all. And that in essence, if we do not grapple with these stories, if we do not candidly face these stories, then what we're doing is we're really not knowing who we really are. And I've always been struck by, at the opening of the museum, what President George Bush said. He said that a great country faces its history. And if we're a great country, let us not be afraid of understanding who we once were, helping us better contextualize who we are now, and maybe then finding a better future. 
Yeah, no, it reminds me of something that uh, the late Toni Morrison always said, and that is that when you talk about American identity, you're talking about race. And you've got to grapple with these issues of race. And even as we do that, grapple with what people have called the sort of difficult or hard truth of this country, you've also uh, pointed us towards something else. And that is, is that in talking about race, it's not simply trying to talk about the past and the past that has brought us here, but it's also required if we are going to indeed be better. And he's called the museum in this regard sort of a site of transformation. Yep. What, what is the role of museums, if you will, in uh, terms of trying to help the nation heal uh, and in the struggle for, for racial justice? I've always felt my whole career has been that when a nation is in crisis, its institutions need to step up. And I've always felt that museums had a crucial role. People trust museums. Museums are one of the few places people of different political points of view and sometimes even racial points of view come together. So I've always felt that museums needed to have the courage to be the places that matter, to talk about difficult issues. You know, I've pushed museums to say, if you don't talk about social justice, and you're not a museum. If you're a place of history, you don't talk about social justice, what you're talking about is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And nostalgia is fun, but it won't fill the belly. It won't inspire the soul. And so for me, what I expect is that museums ought to be a place where people come and grapple with the past, grapple with the present. But maybe more than anything else, if I had my druthers, I'd rather be a place that helped the public embrace ambiguity. Uh-huh. Right? Because one of the great flaws, I would argue, in America is that we look for simple answers to complex questions. That's right. um, and sometimes museums have contributed to that. My notion is if we can create opportunities for people to embrace ambiguity, to understand nuances, shades of gray, complexity, debate, oh my God, what a contribution we make to this nation. So for me, I challenge museums. If you are cities on the hill that nobody goes to, if you are places that recognize that it's just about yesterday, not about today and tomorrow, then why are you there? But if you're institutions that say, how do I help make a country better? That's what you need to do. So I agree. But does it not matter who is, whose gaze it is that is indeed directing, uh, curating, uh, the museum I read some time ago and reading your book this time took me back to it. Some time ago, I read your essay, Flies in the Butterfly. <laughs> and I, I tell you, the re- I read it because I was looking for James Baldwin's essay, Fly in the Buttermilk, right? <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and of course, I, we all love Baldwin and, and your essay came up uh, along with it. So I said, oh, so I read your essay, uh, Flies in the Buttermilk. And uh, and I remember, I recall that essay when I read your book and and the dearth of uh, black museum uh, directors, museum directors and curators of color. And one of the powers of 
what you're doing and who you are as secretary of the Smithsonian is bringing a different gaze, a gaze of a people who had to live and have lived in complexity. And, and so what difference does it make if things change much, by the way, is it still the fly in the buttermilk or the button on the blouse, as I like to say? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, difference the gays make? I would argue that the, one of the most important things is to have many gazes in cultural institutions. Um, and that for years, I always felt that the gaze of race, the gaze of African-American culture was so limited. There were so few people, and even people of goodwill somehow didn't have the same gaze. And so my notion always was that you've got to embrace diversity, um, mm-hmm. not because not just because it's right, right, because it makes you better. It makes you see the sort of whole waterfront, if you will. Um, and what I felt in my whole career is that there were many times that I realized, and I bet you feel the same, that sometimes just by being in the room, you've changed the discourse, right? You don't have to say a thing. You've changed the discourse. Um, and so... I think that museums are better, but I would argue that my generation, there were so many people that should have been leading museums, head curators, who didn't get that shot. So I was committed to making sure that when I got to build a museum, I would hire a diverse, gifted staff, and I would encourage them to leave (laughs) because they've drank the Kool-Aid. They understand, you know, the way we view things. I I want you to go and be like Johnny Appleseed. Plant yeah. those apple trees everywhere. And yeah. so I think that there's still so much work to be done. There's still a chasm, but at least there's now a greater foundation of people of color. So there are more flies in the buttermilk. The key <laughs> is how many can get out of it and get to the top of the pail. Well, that's well, that's right. Turn it to cream and get out. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. But that's the no, That's right. And, you know, as you talk about wanting people to leave, uh, Secretary Bunch, I think about the way in which you tradition, and that is, you know, through the museum and handing down and traditioning through mentorship uh, uh, and helping people to uh, hone their own vision, claim their own voice, have the confidence of their gaze, uh, and have the confidence of their questions. And I've experienced in the African-American Museum, not simply what's there, what you've curated, but it's always been a place, I've been there to see it, and I've been there to be engaged in conversation of the conversations that you're talking about. But let's talk about another part of these conversations, another part of history, and you talked about the difference between nostalgia and really sort of engaging uh, history, and and that brings to mind the Confederate symbols, yep. right? And as you know, I work also at the National yep. Cathedral, and uh, one of our first conversations yep. were around those windows in yep. uh, the cathedral. What? You know, there are museums, and uh, there are public square spaces, and then we have Confederate symbols, uh, be they monuments or stained glass windows. Uh, where? Do symbols like that belong? Well, you know, I've always argued that the South lost the war, but they won the peace. (laughs) Um, And their ability to create through these monuments, to create a mythologized civil war, a mythologized South. What I find fascinating is that these monuments 
were not created in 1865. That's right. Some were created during the beginning of formal segregation, some as late as the 1950s. So they were more about white supremacy than they were about the Civil War. And I believe very strongly as a historian, you don't erase history, but you better prune it like a good rose bush. <laughs> um, and by pruning history, some of those, um, I remember talking to Mayor Landrew of New Orleans yeah. and said, look, whatever you do, take them down, and put them in a warehouse where they can be interpreted. I was so moved by um, a place in Budapest where they took the old Soviet statues and took them down, and put them in a park because they said, this is part of who you are. This has shaped who you've been for the last 50 or 60 years. So you don't want to lose that, but you want to contextualize. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm a big believer in taking some down, replacing them with stories of women who are the, the smallest number of statues in this country are for women. Um, mm -hmm. Replacing those so there's more room for that, but also to contextualize what it means to have Robert E. Lee mm -hmm. as a symbol. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully these will go in museums. Um, some will get melted down and be made into something better. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the key for me is understanding, understanding what they were like. And what always hit me living in this area for many years is I used to always drive to Alexandria and I would always get caught at the light that had that Confederate monument with his, with his back to Washington, but looking me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> I was offended every time because yep, right. I thought, let me tell that story. Let me explain why, that, why this matters and why is it that the losers won the peace. Yeah. And so I'm a big believer in these are teaching moments, um, but the notion that they're sacrosanct, that they shouldn't be touched, I mean, good gracious. The one thing we know is that the who we celebrate evolves over time, so you've got to be able to make different statues and different monuments. So uh, I'm a big believer in prune um, with reckless abandon. <laughs> no, and I love this notion, contextualize. I grew up in Ohio, so we didn't have Confederate monuments, but boy, did we have the flags. And yep. uh, and actually, uh, they made me fearful. And uh, and then when I came this way, I saw uh, the monuments. So I like this notion of contextualizing. That's what museums do. Mm -hmm. and, and what mm -hmm. we put on the public space in the public square tells a story of not only who we are, but who we want to be. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Because you put your finger on what is a really key issue, and that is, you know, I always believe that if we're to have a shared future, we need to have a shared past. Uh -huh. um, and a past that's ripe with candor and truth. Or as John O'Frank used to say to me, the great historian, he said two things always. Tell the unvarnished truth and make sure when people go through a museum, they're changed. And yeah. so for me, that's the power of history, that it gives you uh, unvarnished truth and it can change your lens, your gaze, your understanding. And that's why for me, the, the notion of not being able to teach history, not being able to tell certain stories is not only frightening, yes. um, but it's disappointing in a nation that views itself as a leader of the free world. That's right. That's you right. can't be a leader of a free world if you're afraid of your own history. That's right. And it's how... How have we become a nation that is afraid to grapple with the truth and a nation that's afraid to rise to the questions that the truth asks? You know, we don't have to have the answers. And what I like about the African American Museum of History and Culture is that you leave with more questions right. 
then you do answers and it keeps you coming back to the museum, right. by the right. way. But right. it also makes you dig down into to your history. What I, I hope the mu- what I hope the museum does is inspire new generations of activists. That's right. To help a country live up to its ideals. Yeah. You you have often said that, and then I'm going to shift it a little bit. But as you say that, you've often said and repeat often in your book that uh, you want to make the ancestors smile. And as I've said to you previously, they are smiling but you are also making the generations yet to come, they will be smiling as well. And, and, and that's uh, what that museum does. Let me, let me shift just a little bit and sure. so that I can get this in before. Uh, Got to let you go because you're doing some important work here uh, in t- helping us to reckon with our story as a nation. But that is about... Uh, the story of faith and religion. Yep. And here's what I want to ask you. You tell, of course, a story that I laugh about of your first encounter with uh, Mr. Uh, Jenkins. Yep, Prince Jenkins. First mm-hmm. Prince Jenkins. And one thing that he left you with, besides the affirmation that you didn't like snakes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but is, is he said to you, uh, he said, not you should not remember to tell the story not simply that we want to remember, but that we need to remember. When I think about this and the times we're in, when in so many ways, as you've also said, the soul of our nation uh, is uh, at war. Uh, There's a battle for the soul of our nation. uh, uh, And I can't agree with that more. What is the story? You have in the African-American Museum, of course, you have to tell the story of black faith. And that's that's where I that's where I come from and even work. What is the story from black faith? Not simply that we want to remember, but that we need to remember those of us who are religious and faith leaders today as we grapple in these times with a nation whose soul is in danger of being lost. I mean, I've always been struck by several things. First of all, what religion has done, especially for the African-American community, is created a sense of believing when you shouldn't have believed. Mm -hmm. Believing in a future. I mean, I'm always amazed at our enslaved ancestors. Mm -hmm. How did folks on these plantations that have never gone more than five miles from that plantation, how did they imagine freedom? How did they imagine education? So in some ways, for me, it is what religion has given people has been a foundation to believe beyond what they can see um, and envision an America yet to be. And that, I would argue, is one of the great contributions of Black faith leaders, is to help us imagine an America yet to be. Um, And because I think the most important thing is to be able to believe that you can make a change. Mm-hmm. Or believe that a change is going to come, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what religion does. And and I would argue that in the museum, people said to me, oh, "Are you going to do an exhibition on religion?" I said, "No, it's everywhere. That in every part of the museum, whether it is you know a small group of enslaved people under a brush arbor um, trying to find sustenance to get for the next day, um, or whether it is Martin Luther King and faith leaders standing at the front line." the fight of racial justice, 
or rather it is people who we don't know their names, but who courageously in small congregations said publicly, you do not accept the way things are, accept the way things should be. And that to me is one of the great strengths of the faith-based traditions. And as I've always said, it's part of the glue that holds holds a community and holds a country together. Yeah, no, you know, I I often say just what you uh, just said that I the thing that I can't wrap my mind around is the the are those enslaved ancestors of ours who never breathed a free breath, never dreamt that they would breathe a free breath, yet fought for freedom anyhow. And, you know, as I always say, the freedom that they knew would be because it was the freedom that was the justice of God. And and they open up our moral imaginary. And I think that uh, the museum uh, does that uh, for us in so many ways. If you start uh, down in the bowels of the ship. Mm. And I, I. The first time I went through there, I couldn't get out from that space. (laughs) So you did your job. uh, And but thinking of all of those souls lost, but also all of those souls that came across and never, ever saw freedom. But then they but they never gave up. Uh, Never. never. and, And so. A museum that opens up our moral imaginary and and tradition that does that. But it's also building on all of those faith traditions, which really also got me through building a museum. I would tell the story in my book of going to Israel, bringing Mm -hmm. people on my team to Israel. And we were on this bus and they were giving us tours. And suddenly I noticed we were crossing the River Jordan. I told him, I stopped that bus. He was like, why stop? And we all got out, black, white, and we prayed at the River Jordan, and we sang spirituals, and we knew that just like our ancestors, we were dipping into, at least imaginally, into that River Jordan and knowing freedom mm-hmm. is coming. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it, it is really the, the faith base wor- of my work is in everything I do. Yeah, uh, It really is shaped by that belief. It's a belief in we can imagine a world yet anew. But also, it's a belief that if you struggle long enough, you will get to the promised land. Yeah, yeah. You know what, Secretary Bunch? Can you you talk about your mother, uh, uh, 90-some years old? 93. 93 years old. And uh, and I shared with you uh, stories Mm -hmm. of my great-grandmother. Can you, um, and my grandmother had a dream that her four grandkids would finish high school. Can you imagine what they're thinking now as they look at you, Secretary of uh, of the Smithsonian Institute, an institute that uh, in their day, the kind of institute they would not have been able to go into? No, exactly. I mean, I I think, I feel feel in a good way, the pressure of history. Yeah. The burden of history. Um, Because I recognize that even though I don't think about it all the time, people come up to me, young black museum professionals, and talk about you know how important it is that I'm where I am because they now believe they can be there. Right. Um, you know, and so for me, it is less about me. You know, I'm just some guy from Jersey trying to make it into big city, but it really is about recognizing how do we ensure future generations can build on the work that was done before. 
Right. How can I make sure, as I tell people, you know, people say, well, what does it take to be a secretary? You work hard, but you realize it's not about you, yeah. that it's about the doors you open. It's about the opportunities you create. It's about the lives that you can help change. If you do that, then you've done your job. Mm, yeah. Yes. So let me, I want to get you out of here on time. So I want to ask, uh, got to ask two uh, sure. last questions. One is this, and you alluded to this in one of your earlier questions. You had to work with a whole lot of different people. <laughs> you still do. But in building the museum with people who didn't believe that it was necessary for a number of reasons, some good reasons, some not so good reasons, some that were reflective of what of race in America, uh, and folks who certainly didn't believe that it belonged on the mall. Uh, uh, so, and you continue to have to do that. And it was of necessity for you to do that, to raise funds uh, and to change people's minds. How, what do we learn from you about leading across differences? Well, I think the first thing I learned is that being right, being smart isn't enough. <laughs> that you really got to also be political. So what I would always do is anticipate different points of view, criticism, and think about, all right, how do I handle that? And there were people who said, my God, you know, this is a story that shouldn't be on the mall. And I said, okay, those are the people that I need to humanize the story. Mm -hmm. I need to not talk about slavery or migration, but we talk about this family and their struggle for freedom. And that, would, that enabled people who didn't normally care to suddenly see themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that helped. And the other thing was having a clear sense of where I could compromise and where I wouldn't. You know, I never went into an, a meeting saying, well, we'll see how this plays out. I said, it's got to go A, B, or C. I can go with those. If it goes anywhere else, we're not going to make it. And so to really recognize that it's got to be, be strategic, you got to figure out how to humanize it. And then the other thing was, I don't even know how to define this, except to say, sometimes you just have to be stubborn. <laughs> you just have to say, you know what? Um, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not a table pounder. But I am somebody that's going to be real clear that if I think you're disrespecting the culture, you're going to hear about it. So you had to. So there were times I had to say, "We'll walk away from this um, yeah. because I'm being disrespected." Yeah. No, and I I so appreciated those stories, and I appreciate this uh, storytelling, humanizing, and sometimes bringing people into a common story, but also appreciating that you don't compromise your core values and compromise right. for your soul, and and you certainly. I'd like the story when you said, mm, I really might have to walk away from this. Uh, <laughs> right, no. <laughs> right, right. I remember so, my staff saying, you can't walk away from money. I said, I can walk away from disrespect. Yeah. Thank you. Say that again. You can walk away from disrespect. From disrespect. Don't be disrespectful to me. That's the one thing I will not tolerate. I will not tolerate anybody disrespectful to Black culture, to Black people. I will not. I mean, that's where I'll fight all day because I will not accept that. We've We've been too much. We've been the backbone. We've sacrificed. We've died, but we believe. So I want those people to be worshipped and honored. This Episcopalian is going to say amen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so last question. Sure. You've, uh, you are a man that's dealt with the past and, and made your vocation how we remember the past. But you've used that memory of the past and that gaze upon the past to help us create a better future. 
from that vantage point, as the secretary, first black secretary of the uh, Smithsonian, as the founding director of the African American Museum of History and Culture, as a historian, if you closed your eyes and imagined from those vantage points a just future, a just society, what would it look like? You know, there'd be two words ringing in people's ear, freer and fairer. Mm. Um, and that in essence, what I would love is to build on, you know, words of Martin Luther King or James Baldwin or, you know, Ida B. Wells, who basically says all we're asking for is for a country to live up to its stated ideals mm. and to make sure that you recognize that when we're all in the game, the game is elevated. Um, and what I really want more than anything else is to dream a world that will be worthy of the dreams and hopes of my grandchildren. Mm, mm. Nothing more to be said for that except thank you. Oh, you're the best. Lonnie Bunch, no, you're the best for helping us get a little closer. And I mean this, the work you have done has brought us just a little bit closer to dreaming the world that will be worthy of all of our grandchildren. Thank you for sacrificing yourself to that dream. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for this conversation, because these are the conversations that do allow a world to rethink itself. Mm -hmm. Do allow us all to find that. I'm a big believer. Let's find the way to the promised land. Let's divine it in the right way. I agree. Thank you all for joining us in this conversation. I invite you back on Friday afternoon at 2.30 with a conversation with Richard Rothstein, who has written a book that we all also must read, The Color of Law, The Way in Which the Government Segregated uh, a Nation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas. These 30-minute conversations are featured on the EDS at Union Facebook page. Videos are also available on the Union YouTube page. The audio edition can be found wherever you stream podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share.